At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. Welcome to our newest season of Humane Podcast in 2021. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and this is Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to our show. Welcome back, everyone, to the Humane Podcast. Today, we are talking about the future of education. For all our listeners, you know that education is one of my most passionate topics, being involved with multiple startups that have exited, multiple ventures that are supporting both the nonprofit and for-profit world. And today, I have, I would say, a luminary in the education field. Uh, Today, our guest speaker is Alex Beard. He is a senior director of Teach for All, which is very focused on global education for all, as well as the author of Natural Born Leaders. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, uh, you know, I know for everyone who's listening and for us alike, 2020 has been a year that's been unlike many others, but it has put center stage, again, education. I mean, it's something that we've all learned and we're continuing to learn what a shape for the audience. What are you seeing as the current education crisis and how it's potentially being solved? Yeah, so this all started for me, David, about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago now, when I became a teacher. I became a teacher in a school in London. It was on the Old Kent Road, which is actually London's cheapest monopoly property. And I thought that teaching was going to be really easy. I, I would just walk into the classroom, talk to the kids, and they'd learn just like Robin Williams in Dead Poet Society. But the, the truth was a long way uh, from that. These kids were half of them were free school meals. Two thirds of them spoke English as a second language. All of them came to school sort of years behind where we hoped they might have been in their reading and writing. And they were beginning to live in the future, these kids. And yet I knew as a teacher the methods I was using to teach them would probably be familiar to Socrates two and a half thousand years ago 
in ancient Greece. And yet I knew that the world was changing. I knew that we were making huge advances in our technology. We were making huge advances in understanding how brains worked. Um, and yet I wasn't seeing any of this inside the school where I was teaching. Um, and that's really what ignited my passion for thinking about the future of education, the gap between what I thought was possible if we harnessed all this new knowledge and what was currently true in the classroom that I knew. And I think it's that issue that's at the heart of our education crisis. So even before, um, let me just give you a few stats. So even before the pandemic, 800 million kids around the world were in school, but not learning, according to the World Bank. So we've made huge progress ensuring that all kids can be in a school room with a teacher standing in front of them. But huge numbers of them aren't learning enough to participate in the world of today, whether economically, socially, culturally. And then added to that this year, the global pandemic suddenly kicked one and a half billion kids out of school. So no longer could they even go into the classroom for you know, many months on end. And that crisis has created effects that we're still only beginning to understand. Certainly, it's widened the educational divide. Kids with more resources have had a less bad deal through the pandemic than kids who don't have resources. It's opened up really interesting questions about the role of tech, how important are teachers, what role should families play in education if kids are going to be learning at home? Are kids even learning the right things? You know, shouldn't we be focusing more on their well-being and their real-world skills rather than just sort of plugging gaps in their knowledge? And so I think the pandemic has exacerbated the crisis and intensified some of these questions about what the future of education might hold. It's incredible to think that, you know, myself as a first-generation student who went to college to know that equality is not everywhere for all learners. And just as you mentioned, Alex, you know, thinking back, whether, whether we think of uh, early school, secondary school, college, that there's so much to learn and the world is changing so quickly and not everyone is at the same level. But I wonder why is that the case and why should that be the case? Because do you have to go to Harvard or Stanford or Columbia to learn something? I don't think so. And I think my undergrad was University of Florida. So we're often known as like the Ivy of the South in in Florida. And uh, when in the past, I actually tutored students who were going to Harvard University in the business school when I was just getting started in New York. And I looked at the material. I said, this is the same material that, that we're learning at a state school. And so it's interesting. But also, we've seen during the pandemic is everyone's gone remote only. And of course, the birth of online and remote education and the technology that's powered it has been going on over 20 years. But as you said, the gap has gotten further. I live in New York City today, and um, it was promised that all students would get iPads and Chromebooks to learn has not happened. How about students who might have mental health challenges or, or special learning needs? have not received the resources as well. And I think the biggest disservice during the pandemic with online education has been, look, if you're currently a high school secondary student or college student, you have all the mental faculties, you're already really disciplined, motivated in general to learn and excel. But what about the middle school students? What about the elementary school students? Of those 1.5 billion students getting left behind, 
I think a lot of them might be the younger kids. Yeah, could not agree more. Yeah, so when we think about this, we think about two topics. We think about access and we think about quality. And I want to just give a brief overview of those two things. So one of the things we haven't really had to deal with before in global education recently is this access question. So access normally just means, is there a classroom that I can turn up in and get an education? Well, when schools are shut down, suddenly access actually becomes a different question. It becomes, is there infrastructure that allows me, whether it's through the internet and a laptop or through the radio or through a television, to actually be able to engage with an educator or engage with some educational software or content, however it may be delivered. And when you look at globally, and of course, this is true for some kids in New York and some kids in London as well, they don't have that access, you know, at many, a much smaller scale than somewhere in the you know, global south, for example. But that is something we have to, to focus on. Now, that's a relatively technical solution. That's about building infrastructure and supplying hardware. The interesting bit, probably, which is what you're talking about, is quality. But what does a quality education look like online? So when we talk about quality education, we're talking about how good is the teacher in the classroom in front of you. But again, if you're not going to school, suddenly the question is, how good is the quality of education that you're receiving sitting in your bedroom via your laptop or what have you? And I think what's really interesting, and it's true what you said, it's completely disrupted our idea of what a quality education is. Like if you're not wandering around the campus of Harvard, if no one is, then actually everybody has access to quite a high level of quality education in terms of the content they can access online. And there's some really interesting organisations springing up um, I think outlier.org from the masterclass guys creating new university models for college kids. And there, I think there's huge potential for technology. But what you say, I think is spot on. College kids are self-motivated. They can sit down, uh, most are, can sit down, work through exercises alone, watch lectures, motivate themselves to do that. But from my experience as a teacher, the vast majority of primary and middle school kids are just not equipped with those kinds of faculties yet. And sitting in front of a laptop this or a tablet, there's so much other stuff online that you might otherwise want to be looking at than that class you're supposed to be doing for school and the exercises you're supposed to be filling in. And so I think that's where quality has to mean something about human-to-human engagement. And when the teacher comes back as a figure, even with an online education. So all of the schools and teachers and people that I've spoken to have learned, I think, more than anything during the pandemic that, yes, tech can be a really good crutch for an education system. And actually, it can enhance what teachers do quite significantly. And it can certainly solve a problem now. But it really matters most of the time with K-12 school-aged kids that there is a teacher there, that there is another human that is engaging them in a learning process to keep them motivated, to help them when they struggle or don't know the answer or don't know how to make progress. Because ultimately, you know, learning for most people is better when it's social. You need a champion, right? You need someone who who's your advocate and they're pushing you beyond. And we've seen it with some of the major tech apps out there like Duolingo, right? For learning languages, very social, very gamified, leaderboards competing with your friends, all very friendly competition. 
We've seen it with um, other sports like chess, which has you know come back into the limelight this year with Queen's Gambit. That everyone's competing and you know it's all fun and free. And those are of course you know extracurriculars, hobbies. They're not the most people are not going to become Beth from Queen's Gambit and become world class chess players. They're looking to build a life of purpose and meaning, and that starts with education. And one of my biggest concerns that I'm thinking every day how to solve is as a result of the pandemic, kids have been out of school globally, right? And they haven't been out of school globally for a month, two months. Some kids now, this is a year. And of the 1.5 billion kids that are falling behind, what's possible? I mean, I know that a lot of parents are concerned, you know, is there pre-K for all? Is there uh learning happening, even remote, you know, if parents working a job and being remote. I'm trying to think, how can we solve for education? Yeah, I mean, we've seen some really promising stuff emerging across our global network at at Teach for All. And lots of those were responses that came from the grassroots from educators in general trying to solve this problem. So the moment the schools were locked down and these one and a half billion kids were out of school, teachers began to ask themselves, we can see this huge crisis coming. We know that if these kids are out of school for too long, then the divide will widen. So what are we going to do about it? Here in the UK, there was an amazing group called Oak National Academy. And basically a group of 40 teachers came together in the two weeks of the Easter holidays. They should have been you know, off uh, relaxing. But instead, they created an online school. They created their own lesson content. They found a host to put it together. I think they got a little bit of support from Google and have launched now a national academy, which provides lessons five hours per day in every subject for every age group of children in the UK. Weekly, they've got 800,000 users um, they've been used more than 30 million times by different people across the country. And this was something created by teachers. And it's completely free for public use. And I think that it will become part of the system in the long run. That that's not going away because it has, has so much use. Like teachers can use it in their classrooms. They can, if a kid is sick or off school or they want to set some homework, then the children can use this platform. And so I think that kind of thing will become a permanent feature of education systems as a result. And somewhere like the UK, that's good because it will plug gaps. Everybody more or less has access to the hardware they need so kids can use that. So I think it will potentially have a bit of a equalizing effect. So that's one example. In Nigeria, where we work as well, Teach for Nigeria based there, it's a different setting. You know, most kids don't have access to a device or 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 necessarily the internet. And so there, again, a group of teachers partnered with a state television channel to create television lessons. And again, I think what we're finding in all these examples, so those guys reaching, again, millions of children across Ogun State in the south of Nigeria. And what we what we see with the practitioners is that they're having to develop new pedagogies, new ways of learning how to engage kids through the medium of technology, through a screen. And I think we probably have made progress on that. We don't really believe any longer that if you just sit a learner in front of a screen with a video, that that's going to give them a full education. You know, you need to know how to engage a student, need to know how to pique their interest and what to do if they get stuck and how to help them 
work through it. And lots of that stuff we haven't really figured out yet how to encode into the technology. You still need that teacher there, even if they're operating through Zoom um, or through a radio phoning, to be able to help help with that. So we're seeing lots of grassroots solutions cropping up. And I think one other thing that's giving me hope is that it's also forcing teachers to be in touch with parents and parents to be in touch with teachers more than we've seen in the past. And what we know from technologies of the past and in other sectors is they can have this multiplying effect. So if you've got a good tool, like a a platform on which a child is carrying out their learning, then it gives visibility to both the teacher and the parent to see what the child is doing and the common grounds for communication. So how is Alex getting on with this task? And, you know, where are their misapprehensions or areas for further work? And because the kids aren't coming to school, the teachers are having to pick up the phone to parents. The parents are having to pick up the phone to teachers to better understand what's going on. And so we may be strangely strengthening bonds between teachers and parents, strengthening that active role that parents are playing in education as a result of the pandemic. And you're just going back to your point about pre-K. What we know at pre-K is that it's all about the parents. So how far are parents equipped to work with or support their kids from the moment they're born? You know, we know all sorts of crazy statistics. The three things that matter more than anything when a child is in their early years are, first of all, the amount of words that they hear, the variety of words. There's that famous study from Hart and Misley in Kansas that rich kids hear 30 million more words than poor kids by the age of five and that stuff is happening whether there's a pandemic or not so that kind of input matters play is really really important so you you want to have lots of stimulus but you want to have lots of freedom and exploration and feedback as a small learner and then finally that you're in a loving and secure environment you feel loved that's actually the most important thing you feel securely attached in the world and that depends on the parents and there are some amazing things out there amazing organizations that are working with parents to help them to support the youngest kids. So there's this incredible app here in the UK called Easy Peasy, and they send out regular messages to parents to help them with their kids. And I think that what we're learning from the pandemic is, well, actually, maybe we should be applying some of that thinking about how we support early learning virtually to how we support the learning of kids at primary school and middle school. And that involves engaging parents more actively in supporting their kids to learn. From all the areas you just described, Alex, I think the biggest area that I hear that's been missed out on is play also. That, you know, a lot of primary school is you're with your friends, the social aspect, the social learning, the social playing. And if you're just doing that on the screen, it becomes very alone time, isolating, introspective. And uh, I know at least when we think more about secondary students and the middle high school, at least in the United States, and I'm sure this is globally, that mental health has risen to the occasion as the new barrier that needs to be solved beyond just education. And often I saw in my experience and even in the classroom today that us educators often are that counselor and coach and that champion to encourage people to to dig deep beyond any mental health challenges they're having to have a good learning moment. I think that's one of the areas that hasn't been solved yet, 
but there's also emerging solutions. We know that a lot of governments have partnered with platforms like Calm.com and Headspace, which helps you know us who are very more uh, Socratic to be able to go deeper there. But there's so much more. There's so many emerging solutions. And I think one of the biggest takeaways I love from the examples that you shared is that practitioners are leading the response. Teachers in the UK, teachers in Nigeria, teachers in America are saying, you know, the government, it's its great. They support us with their policies, but often they're not fast enough when we need different change. So, you know, we the people, right, can lead. And that's been really exciting to see. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. You know, I think we all knew before the pandemic that schools were important and that teachers were important. But in the pandemic, we really knew the schools and teachers are important. And you sort of begin to actually understand the role that schools and teachers play in societies and, and communities. So we think of them as places of learning. This is where our kids go so that they can pass their exams or what have you. But it's, of course, more than that. It's also where children go to learn to be in society. It's where they go and, and someone's looking out for their well-being, how they're doing. Um, it's also the place where kids go so that parents can go to work and the economy can still function. Essentially, we found out that, I mean, in my view, there is no institution more important in our societies than the school. The school is sort of the hub of, of absolutely everything. It drives our economies. It fuels the bonds in our societies. It replenishes our culture. It allows us to go to work. And so I think if if there's one thing we take away, I hope that it's it's that. Education, you know, is the most crucial thing that we do in schools are really doing amazing things. But it's also, as you say, pointing to maybe a, an expanded idea of the role for teachers. Now, even before the pandemic, I thought that teachers had the most important job in society. So we live in this era in which all of the resources are running out. The land is running out. You know, the resources that we use for energy are running out. The only unlimited resource we have is human ingenuity. That's unlimited, our intelligence. And it's teachers in schools that cultivate that potential. But I think we need to be more explicit about the different roles that teachers play and set up our system to enable that. So, yes, teachers are subject specialists who help kids to do better in math or English or geography or art, or whatever it might be. But also, as you're hinting at, they're psychologists, they're people that nurture the bonds in a, in a group that understand how to motivate other human beings, that are trying to build an environment and a culture in which kids succeed and try. But actually more than that now, 
we also need teachers to, you know, be neuroscientists to understand a bit of the science behind how a brain develops and be applying that practice in their classroom. And then finally, I think we need teachers to be, if not experts in tech, at least to understand how they can use the latest tools to outsource bits of their practice to save themselves time. You know, why don't I use this platform for my assessments and then it will do the analysis for me and I'll get the trends for my class and that will save me some time. Or, oh, actually, the kids need to learn this topic. I could use this other platform to help them to practice that learning or, or this conversational agent or whatever it might be in the future. And so I think teachers are going to need to be subject specialists, coaches and psychologists, neuroscientists and experts in understanding how the tech works. And I think that the pandemic has accelerated that. Like you say, there's this big crisis of well-being. Teachers are very worried about the well-being of their students and they feel responsible for that. And so that's going to be a big trend. They're having to use technology, many teachers, for the first time. And there are some young, innovative teachers out there who are stepping up to the plate and helping their colleagues to get online and understand how to do their lectures through Zoom or what have you. And so I think we've slightly accelerated this shift in what the role of the teacher is in the 21st century and what tools those teachers are equipped to use. I mean, it's so perfect how you put it, Alex. The teacher is to teach. And so to expand the idea of a teacher is to say, should a teacher really just be grading? Should a teacher really be understanding all these things themselves? Or can they use different tools to augment that? So like you mentioned, there's a lot of automation assessment tools coming out. Do I need to manually use a pen and paper and check correct wrong when I can auto tabulate that? You know, can I use these different platforms? If I'm a Spanish teacher, can I use Duolingo to empower my students for learning? Not necessarily fully replace the textbook, but to supplement and augment that. And then to see you know, better what students are succeeding or falling behind. So I see this all across the industry, education, every vertical. I think initially there's always this concern of fear. Oh gosh, we're outsourcing, we're automating. It's the end of teachers, right? Teachers are going away. It's all going to be these robots. I don't think so. I think it's going to create more powerful and meaningful learning experiences. Yeah, I certainly hope that is the case. I mean, when I set out to do the research for my book, I went on this journey. It took me across six continents over two years to meet with teachers at the cutting edge, scientists, technologists, to try to discover well, what is the, the future of education, what that's already here with us. And that was it. You know, I had I had heard, you know, wherever reading things from folks who are a little bit utopian about this stuff, that the robot teachers were coming, that we're going to have these AI teachers and human teachers would be a thing of the past. I didn't see it. You know, I went looking for it. And I didn't find that. But what I did find was still exciting. And that was that there were these tools that we're developing now, which can enhance what teachers are doing. Now, I think we have to be careful in education, what we enhance and, and what we outsource. So we already know that, you know, for example, by using our navigation apps on our smartphones, that the hippocampus in our brains is shrinking in size on average because we're not using it. That's the, the navigational part of the brain and we're not using it and so because we're outsourcing it. So technology can have a real effect on human learning. There's also another interesting issue, I think, which is that in tech, we're often trying to be user-friendly about things, whereas learning 
isn't really user-friendly. Learning has to be user-unfriendly for it to be of any use. You need like a bit of friction to rub up against. There's this concept of desirable difficulty that a couple of psychologists identified in learning. If it's not difficult, you're probably not learning. You're probably being conditioned. So I think we have to kind of be wary of these things. That said, I think that from the moment I started looking into this to now, we've really matured in our understanding of the role of the role that tech will play in education in the future. And that is exactly, as you say, to equip teachers with tools. Assessment is one big thing. So there's a really interesting organization here in the UK called Century Tech, and they're working in like dozens of schools across the country, half the schools in Belgium. They're expanding all over the world and they have a platform which students only use for a couple of hours a week and they do whatever it might be, a little bit of math, a little bit of English. And as they're using it, the platform is recording all the data it can about them. So every answer they give when they put an answer in or delete the answer, how they move the cursor around the screen. I mean, some of it I think is legitimate. Some of it is maybe reaching a little bit currently, but then those things are analyzed by their engine compared to all the other thousands of kids using the platform. And a dashboard then gives that information in a really user-friendly way to the teacher. So the teacher can sort of look at how their, how their students are getting on and also goes to the parents, the parents can see how that's going. So you're getting this assessment, which is then allowing teachers to make judgments. So it's like empowering human judgment, which is, you know, we know to be a good use of technology, AI-assisted technologies in general. So that's happening. You're also getting a little bit of the personalization of learning. So through platforms where platforms can then, based on the analysis of where kids have got strengths or weaknesses after they've used the platform, serve content to those kids a bit like, you know, the Netflix or Amazon algorithm would serve us content linked to our interest in shopping or whatever it might be, which is perfectly matched to what we need to learn next. And that stuff, I think, is working quite well, just to come back to your point about Duolingo, for subjects where there's a really clear and structured knowledge base, like a language or like mathematics or like science or, or where there are like a set of discrete pieces of knowledge that we know kids need to master these kinds of AI-enabled personalized learning platforms are pretty good for that. They're pretty good for exam prep. In India, in China, there are dozens of these AI education companies who are doing test prep and making billions because, first of all, everybody wants test prep in those countries. But secondly, it's slightly easier to automate a test prep type engine because it's all about right or wrong answers. You can see that being a frontier as well. Now, of course, there's a huge amount of other stuff then, which that leaves for the humans to be doing in the loop. So actually, in the most hopeful cases, you're saving teacher time by putting tech in the hands of learners and teachers so that they could do the kinds of more routine activities that a teacher doesn't really need to be there for, which then frees up the teacher to do the more creative stuff, the small group interventions, the working with individual students to help them get past misapprehensions that they have and so on. And so I'm excited that we've got this more mature understanding of the role that tech and, and AI was going to play in education in the future now. It's, we're seeing it globally. We're seeing it in startups like you've seen with Squirrel AI in China and other ventures that are seeing not how to remove the teacher from the loop, but how to augment the teacher in the student learning. And that personalization has been going on forever since wrote paper to these non-adaptive apps to now the age of adaptive apps that are coming about. And 
of course, this while seems very promising and exciting, it does always beg the question of what dangers can exist and the dangers of AI and are we creating humans that shouldn't be humans. The case I share is chess. I'm a huge fan of this game. And I mentioned this year, you know, Queen's Gambit came out. And so good. Love it and love to play chess on chess.com. And um, I actually had recently interviewed the CTO of Play Magnus. Uh, the CTO, you know, makes this app for Magnus Carlsen, the number cool. one chess player. And, and so Magnus Carlsen today trains with AI to become a better chess player. And now when he plays some of these top players, he does unconventional moves, not the moves that Bobby Fischer would make, but like moves that no one would expect. They get thrown off. Magnus Carlsen gets into a disadvantage, but then because it's so unique, he's discovered new pathways, basically neuro-linguistic programming for himself, how to play better, how to play differently. So I look at that as an example of, it seemed like it was a danger, you know, the AI is going to beat the humans, but now we got smarter humans at chess and we have all these new techniques. What are you thinking about AI with education? Are these real dangers? Is there hype? What do you think? I think that is such an interesting topic. AI as a sort of adversary to help us enhance our own creativity. And there are other examples of composers who have put their music through various AI engines and listened to those compositions and advanced their own practice by several years just by being able to kind of skip those developmental leaps that they would have made themselves because the AI has helped them to do so. I think that stuff is really exciting. At the moment, it feels to me, like again, you could imagine a beginner learning chess through that, that method as well. So you could imagine if I'm motivated to learn to play chess, I can play against a computer agent and get better at chess. I don't have to be a grandmaster, but if I am a grandmaster, it's going to help me to take these extra leaps into the future. Now, again, I think it works for something like Duolingo as well, right? You know, and again, I come back to this point that that you made earlier, that's a bit about the motivation. Am I able to keep myself in this game, keep myself going through the learning? So I don't see necessarily dangers in that kind of use of AI in education. I think the dangers for me are more connected to the intentions that we sort of encode into whatever it is that we create. So for example, we we could easily encode and, and so I guess what I'm saying is it's not the AI that's really dangerous here, it's the humans and, and what they're doing with it and how they design it in the first place. There are a few things I think you know worth raising. So encoding biases into algorithms, you know, very famously, what happens to the data that companies like Squirrel AI gather and what do they use it for? The fact that currently in many applications, AI is being used to create these slightly more rote and routine learning environments. And is there a danger that we sort of narrow the scope of education because it's slightly easier for our AIs to read and understand and to structure? But again, I think that will come down to human choices. But there are some very real ones there, which is, well, I could imagine a cheaper education system, which is almost entirely served via tablet computers and involves very few teachers. And it probably won't be quite as good as having a great teacher, but it might actually be slightly better than having a bad teacher. And certainly it will be cheaper than having teachers in every classroom. So I think there's there's a danger there of us driving ourselves towards like a very homogenized but slightly cheaper education system that we should guard against. 
Um, but again, it's going to be humans that make those decisions. It's not necessarily a logic in the technology. That's a logic of the market that's kind of potentially is um, uh, difficult there. In other countries, there are some maybe some slightly scary things to be like. So in China, I went to a big conference in Beijing last year, all about facial monitoring in the classroom. So dozens of companies got up on stage, showed off their different softwares that they were using to see whether kids were paying attention in class. So these are classrooms across China and other places where there are cameras at the top of the blackboard staring out at the kids and monitoring throughout the class. And in theory, that can give teachers interesting bits of information about which parts of their lessons were more or less engaging to the students and how students were feeling during the class. On the other hand, if you're living in a surveillance state which tracks a lot of data of citizens continually, you have to ask yourself what kind of inferences might be made from that and what might that data mean for you in the future of, of your life. So I think, again, it comes down to who gets the data and, who, and who's doing what with it um, afterwards. I don't think that you know tech is necessarily a, a good or an evil just by itself. It's sort of what we do with it as users. And so I think we have to make those decisions. You know, again, teachers. So we could see a tech as a way, we could want to automate teachers because we don't think they're any good and we could take away from them as many of the, the skills that, that we can because we want to create a product which is consistent, like a sort of education Starbucks or something. They have that with Bridge International Schools in, in East Africa. The teachers aren't really highly qualified teachers. They're just adults and they get a tablet and they read lesson scripts out now that gives the kids like a relatively good average layer of education but those teachers are never going to get better at teaching because they're just continually reading a script out and so there's a risk again of if you deploy technology in in certain ways of undermining the ability of humans to get better at things now happily lots of people are designing to enhance the humans in the loop which is i think how we should be thinking about it but there's a danger when when we don't design with that in mind. So taking everything we've talked about today, we know that the world is hopefully going to begin reopening as the next two years, these vaccines come live and we move back from all online to not necessarily all in person, but maybe some hybrid model and, and education is going to keep evolving what do you see as a call to action for our listeners today that we should be thinking about education or any takeaways? Yes, yeah, so the favorite classroom I went to in all of my travels was uh, a classroom of a teacher called Pekka Peora in Finland. He's Finland's most famous teacher. And in his classroom, I saw him, he put a question up on the whiteboard and then he got kids to use their devices to beam in answers, A, B, C, D or E. He displayed the answers in a bar chart on his board and then he didn't tell them the answer. He said, talk to each other explain to each other what answers you gave after a few minutes they beamed their answers in again and the bar chart had shifted the kids had taught each other and he basically told me afterwards look we have technology now which allows me to coach kids on their abilities as learners and allow the content to take care of itself he gave them everything that they needed at the beginning of the term he gave them their tests the answers to the test their books and everything and then they would work their way through it whilst he gave them feedback on things like their collaboration, their perseverance, that was where he was focusing as a teacher. And I think that the call to action there is to notice that in the deployment of technology in education, there are great advances to be made, but the advances will be made not by trying to improve the tech, but by trying to improve what the humans are doing with the tech. It's all about, for me, an investment in 
people and not an investment in technology. The tech is pretty good already and we can do great things with it. And so what we need to focus on, if you're thinking about designing something or you're working in education, the call to action is this, that we should be thinking about designing simple tools that support people to be better and not complicated tools that replace people. Wow. Well, with that, uh, Alex Beard, Senior Director for Teach for All, author of Natural Born Learners. Thank you so much for joining us on Humane. Thanks for having me, David. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. Did the episode measure up to your thoughts on ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education? Share your thoughts with me at humanepodcast.com forward slash contact. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review, and listen for more episodes of Humane. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.